Good evening, and welcome to the Locked On Winnipeg Jets show, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and follow the podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. As always, be sure to follow and subscribe on your favorite platform of choice, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and the Megaphone app. Subscribing is free and keeps you up to date on the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news and analysis. Before we get underway, I just wanted to give you a quick programming heads up for those who don't follow the Twitter account but are still listening. Um, Tomorrow's episode is going to be pushed to Saturday as I had a guest plan to record this evening, but unfortunately he couldn't make it due to a scheduling change. I'll be at a concert tomorrow night, so I was hoping to record tonight's episode for, uh, I was going to record tonight's episode and then tomorrow's episode at the same time, but unfortunately I'm not going to be able to do that this evening, so uh, just keep an eye out on Saturday for the next episode, um, and then I'll, I'll take a look at what happened in the Bruins game and hopefully catch up and get up to speed. I'm hoping I don't miss a particularly eventful game, I'll put it that way, but every time the Jets play the Bruins, weird stuff happens, so I'm expecting a little bit of chaos at least. Speaking of the weird, wacky, wild, and wonderful, on tonight's episode we're going to talk about the strangest and most surprising outcomes and storylines of the current NHL season. Some of these storylines are pretty well known, uh, and some of them are going to be a little bit more on the underrated side. But before we get to that, there was a little bit of Jets news that broke earlier today. This one coming courtesy of Scott Billick. Uh, If you're not following him, he usually has some pretty good insider reporting and quotes from some of the Winnipeg Jets coaching staff, including Paul Maurice. And that's what we have today, which is a quote from Paul Maurice, uh, especially in regards to the trade deadline. Over the past few weeks, I've been increasingly worried that the Jets were going to make some kind of reckless play for a trade deadline acquisition that really doesn't fix this team. Um, I think Chevy has said that he's looking for a top four defenseman, and while I would be fine with a guy with term that's, you know, a quality choice and not Rasmus Ristolainen, obviously the Jets pro scouts, in my opinion, have a, a bit of a mixed track record. I mean, Look at the guys that they claimed off of waivers to fix the holes that are currently on the roster. Over the years, we've gotten Joe Morrow, Lucas Abisa, I think, I don't know if Cam Schilling was a waiver claim, I forget at this point, uh, but we also got Anthony Batetto, Nick Shore, um, so these guys are, Nick Shore is, I think, of those of those names, he's, he's definitely the most decent skater of all of them, but he's not exactly a high-impact NHL forward, and he doesn't need to be. You're usually not going to get somebody off of waivers who can be um, a real difference maker. It's not that frequent. Shore, though, has been good for the Jets, and I think he makes sense as like your ideal fourth-line C. But as far as the other guys are concerned, I mean, the D guys that we've picked up, Joe Morrow probably leads the pack as being the best of those, and Joe Morrow is... Uh, how shall we say, not exactly a stellar signing, or in his case, I just checked it again because I wasn't sure if he was claimed. He was actually a, a trade acquisition, and I think he was the same uh, trade window that we got Bolu. That's if my memory serves me correct. Bolu might have actually been last season. It all starts to blur together when you're trading for depth defensemen and players who really don't make a, a huge difference or move the needle all that much. Tomorrow's credit, I mean, he was bad, but he wasn't like the worst defenseman we've ever had, uh, but he's just not exactly the kind of guy that, again, you really rely on to be a, a major difference maker in your organization, but Morrow tended to get a lot of high leverage ice time, especially on the PK, and I feel like the Jet Scouts that identified him kind of got a little bit overwhelmed by his size and his supposed like defensive qualities. Everyone kept circling around the fact that he was some kind of, you know, playoff hero for the Boston Bruins, except the Bruins ended up not winning the cup that year, so 
I don't really know what exactly they were seeing in him other than the fact that he played a lot of minutes during the playoffs, and that really isn't a reflection of his actual talent. That's more of the fact that the Bruins maybe weren't uh, looking at his deployments in the right way. Sabisa and Batetto are arguably worse in a lot of respects because uh, Sabisa is just kind of a disaster. I, I don't know. Every time I watch Sabisa, I feel like that dude just gets himself into so much trouble. I think somebody succinctly summed him up a couple of seasons ago when they said he he has the ability to skate himself from out of trouble into even bigger trouble with almost no effort. In trying to solve his own dilemmas, he actually creates bigger messes for himself to clean up, which Sabisa is not really capable of doing. He seems like a nice guy and all, but as far as uh, an impact defenseman is concerned, the only one he's helping is the opposing team. Potato is kind of one of those guys where he's, you know, not bad, not bad. I mean, he's exactly what you expect for a 6th or 7th defenseman. Um, I wouldn't really want to trust him with a lot of minutes or on the PK even, even but Potato is what he is at this point in his career. He's better than I expected, but again, that's pretty low bar to clear. As you can see, these are the kinds of defensemen the Jets tend to like to acquire, and as you can tell, I am very lukewarm on those prospects. But Paul Maurice was actually quoted as saying he thinks it's not a great time to, to be a buyer for the Jets. Um, in fact, he said he doesn't want to pay a whole lot. So if if he's the one calling the shots on these trades, which again also concerns me because I think he likes the wrong kinds of players, well, Chevy is going to have to be a little bit careful and, and be in a bit more of a compromising state, which, I, you know, he he probably wants to get a higher skilled defenseman and get Sami Niku more ice time, but his coach likes reliable physical vets, although when I say reliable, I mean by his definition of reliable, not how I see things. I'm pretty okay with the Jets not really buying anyone that's not on a good deal or a, uh, a you know, a termed contract and is a good quality asset, because frankly, it's just going to be a waste. The Jets should only be looking towards next season and beyond. This season's pretty much lost. My opinion is that you just ride with what you have and maybe give ice time to some more kids and try and get Dylan Sandberg in here if you can, but beyond that, don't don't spend assets on an effort that's probably going to result in a disappointing loss. This Jets team, in my opinion, is, play, is playing some of the worst sustained hockey that they've ever played in their entire franchise history. Like, the Jets haven't really been great. Sometimes they've been, you know, bad for stretches at a time, but for almost an entire season. I mean, the Jets just haven't played this poorly in a long time. I remember when they were in the, you know, conference finals years, they they actually opened the season in a very similar manner to how the Jets are playing right now, but that, that didn't last all that long before they basically took flight and became a totally different team. This Jets squad I just don't really see improving at all in the near future, and I don't think that, barring an internal change or some sort of tactical change, that things are going to get better anytime soon. If Maurice is the one calling the shots for the trade deadline, I imagine we're going to get some gritty, tough guy like a maybe a Goob Branson type or something. But beyond that, I just hope that we don't pay a whole lot because those guys tend to be pretty low value, and frankly, I don't really want them playing a whole lot for the Jets. Winnipeg's odds of getting a slightly higher first-round pick are probably more likely than them actually making and succeeding in the playoffs, so I'd rather have the first-rounder and stuff to try and refill this prospect cupboard because right now the Jets are a little barren. On our first list of uh, surprises, this one is going to be unpleasant for fans of the Pacific Division, but congrats, your division kind of sucks But um, It's not exactly shocking that the Pacific has seen something of a step back, uh, despite the fact that a couple of the teams are, are all in playoff spots. Uh, a lot of this division is just really mediocre, and I feel like their records are a little bit inflated because they all play each other. I would say that of all the Pacific Division teams, I only really would worry about the Vegas Golden Knights, and the Golden Knights just fired their head coach, which was another surprising development. 
Vegas is a very strong team, and I feel like even with a new head coach uh, in, in charge, this is a squad that's going to be a real tough out for pretty much anyone who faces them. As long as they make the playoffs and get some kind of goaltending that isn't below average, the, the Knights are going to be a real pest for anyone. They still have Mark Stone, Max Pacioretty, Smith, Marchessault, Carlson, the addition of guys like Cody Glass. This is a deep team that plays a really aggressive style of hockey, and they have a lot of passing talent that they can creates a ton of like quality opportunities off of a lot of pre-shot movement. This night squad, though, is kind of in stark contrast to the rest of the Pacific Division. I guess your next best team is probably uh, like the LA Kings, I would say. Like, the Kings actually play very decent hockey, and I feel like Todd McClellan was actually a pretty good coach, to especially to, to bring for this squad. LA has a lot of talent issues and deficiencies, it's not exactly shocking because the squad's basically in like a, a sort of pseudo-rebuild state, and they're still kind of weighed down a bit by their existing contracts, but, I mean, Kopitar is still very productive for his age. Dustin Brown exists, I guess. Uh, but, like, you know, LA is a decent team despite all of the stuff that it carries around with it as baggage. What they lack is a lot of young talent to supplement the veterans, so right now things are a little bit top-heavy, and their depth players are decent, but... They aren't really elite finishers. They might be able to create a lot of scoring opportunities with an aggressive forecheck and a net drive and a net presence, but whether their guys can really capitalize on those opportunities is probably not something that you would expect a lot of. The Flames and Oilers and the Yotes, in my opinion, are all kind of in the same boat of being like an okay team, but not exactly spectacular. On an individual level, some of those squads have really high-end talent, but the rest of it just doesn't really come together in a way that I think makes them a real threat. There's this general morass of mediocrity, and like even the Kings and the Knights don't really have the kinds of results that you'd hope for. Like the Knights mostly just need saves, the Kings need elite goal scorers. So at the top of the division, you're basically just looking at Vegas as being a real serious playoff competitor. The other teams in the division are like first round fodder, I guess. Some of them might be able to to squeak past their opponents and get through, but I don't know. If you put any of those squads against, like, Colorado or, or Nashville or maybe even Dallas and St. Louis for a seven-game series, I'm not sure that they would do particularly well. It's not like I think the Central Division is all that strong either. I mean, past St. Louis, the rest of the Central is kind of a mess, but I think that the Pacific Division, in terms of overall strength, is still weaker in a lot of respects. And I think no team is more surprising and, and more puzzling than the, the the San Jose Sharks. San Jose is in a very strange spot because Doug Wilson likes to gamble, and Wilson usually gets to win on the gambles that he makes. This is one of the first seasons where the Sharks have really gotten bitten bad. They made a massive blockbuster trade to acquire Eric Carlson, and things just haven't gone as smoothly as they'd hoped. Um, they've only had one Stanley Cup Finals trip in the past couple of seasons, and really things are looking grim. Tomas Hurdle was just announced as having torn his ACL and MCL, and the team that owns his first round pick for this year is Ottawa. After all of the drama and stuff that we thought, the, you know, the Sens kind of got wrecked on that trade and then things were m maybe not as bad as it seemed, and then now the Sens have actually somehow won the trade, even though at the time it was probably more in, more in San Jose's favor. The Sharks are like a bottom five team in the NHL, and when you look at their contract situation, there's not a whole lot of relief coming anytime soon like Burns, Vlasic, Martin Jones, their regular punching bag. All of these guys are signed to big money deals for a lot of years. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, 
the Sharks are kind of up the creek without a paddle if they're playing this poorly already, and, they, and they're not getting saves either. Like, they're defensively poor, their offense is a little bit inconsistent, and they're basically running on two AHL goaltenders who aren't really capable of being full-time starters. I'm just very puzzled as to what exactly Wilson can do to even remotely extricate himself out of this. Joe Thornton is probably hanging up the skates really soon, if not at the end of the season. How much more can you ride this team? Kevin LeBanc took a discount for a year, and now he's going to be due uh, a decent amount of money, certainly a raise in what he's got now, and the Sharks really don't have a whole lot of cap space to work with. And now they're down their all-star center after, you know, they don't even have their first-round pick, and they're probably a lotto team. Of all of the surprises, I have to say that San Jose being as bad as it is was probably the most, you know, baffling thing. The Sharks have always struggled with goaltending, but... Playing decent, competent hockey is not something that they've had an issue with. Their defensive structure has usually been fine. They've had great power play success. Their 5v5 even strength offensive chance creation has been good. This year, almost everything's gone down the toilet. I think the only thing that's been good for them was like the PK or something. San Jose is just a really talented roster with a ton of poor performance, and I don't know how you turn that that squad around, especially in light of the fact that they're not making the playoffs this year. They blew a lead last night to the Vancouver Canucks, who are in that same you know pit of mediocrity as like Edmonton and Vancouver or Edmonton and Calgary. And obviously the Anaheim Ducks are down at the bottom doing whatever it is the Anaheim Ducks do. So you know you think about the Sharks being pretty bad. I mean they lost to Vancouver five two after they had a two one lead heading into the third period. This team just seems to collapse under under all of the weight and pressure of their I don't know if it's their expectations. Um, poor coaching, aging veterans, whatever is amiss in San Jose's waters, something has to change and change soon. They've already fired their head coach, Pete DeBoer, and the ship really hasn't righted. So, you know, if DeBoer wasn't the main problem, even though he did need to go, then what exactly is going to fix this this team? I mean, they're on a collision course with a first overall pick that they won't own. So, yeah, I, I feel like San Jose, for me at least, is the most shocking revelation of the season. Continuing our list of surprises, we're going to move on to some players now who maybe aren't getting the spotlight, or if they are, it's probably for the wrong reasons. I think the first surprising player, for those who haven't really paid attention to the Arizona Coyotes or their prospect system, is going to be Connor Garland. Garland's an interesting guy because I actually only found out about him after doing some like fantasy hockey for the past couple of years. I was trolling around my waiver wire looking for an underrated scoring talent, and Garland's name happened to pop up once or twice. Connor is kind of this guy who I think was an overager or something uh, in junior hockey, and the Yotes ended up picking him up. He was kind of considered a bit of a fringy-ish, longer shot, uh, although he possesses a really great release and, and is a natural scorer almost from day one. I wasn't sure if he was actually going to be an NHLer at any point in his career. When he was signed off of, uh, a, it was like a fifth round pick, and when he was brought in, he kind of had okay numbers with the Tucson Roadrunners. With Moncton, he was an offensive force, and I think he was known for having a, a really nasty shot. But as far as like a pro hockey player is concerned, he had quite a few things to work on. And a lot of these overagers that you tend to take a bit of a flyer on, especially guys who are maybe not high-end prospects and are sort of deeper picks, uh, Garland is an interesting situation in that he always had offensive potential, but whether or not that would translate with the kind kind of skill set and size that he had was hard to say. Uh, fast forward to 2020 and 2019, it's very clear that Garland is one of the 
underrated pieces that's powering Arizona's offense. He's very elusive, he's got a great shot, and he's a very smart player, and he tends to find himself in really good scoring positions and opportunities. When you think about a really elite third-line goal scorer, that's the kind of guy Garland is, and I feel like, you know, he's gotten bounced around the top six a bit, he's played in the middle six, he's a really versatile scorer, and I feel like He's the kind of guy that if you're a contender, you want to have anchoring your middle six unit so that you can have somebody who feasibly could actually play on your power play, but is also a versatile even strength scorer as well. Also coming from the Arizona Coyotes is Jakob Chukrin, who's actually had something of a bounce back season after the past couple of years where he's been nothing but injured. At one point, Chikrin was considered one of the top defensive prospects in the NHL, but some serious injuries really derailed his early parts of his career. This season, he's finally managed to stay healthy, and it's made a huge difference in his on-ice impact. That defensive unit really relies on him, although in the past couple of games, he's had some issues where uh, he's getting relegated to the third pairing. But going forward, Chikrin will be somebody that they're going to lean heavily on as one of their top two-way and offensive defensemen. If we're talking defensemen, I think it's pretty obvious that Neil Pionk's ascendancy with for the Jets is probably one of the more surprising outcomes. I thought that Pionk was going to be very bad. He's been anything, but he's actually been one of Winnipeg's top overall defensemen. Although he does kind of inflate his own score with the power play points that he earns, he's just generally, generally really solid. I feel like as far as guys who could come in and step into Jacob Truba's role and kind of run with it, Pionk has done about as well as you could expect. He's still very awkward with his defensive positioning, and there's a lot of raw aspects to his game, especially when he has to improvise defensive reads on the fly. Compared to where he was just a year ago, and even earlier in the season a few months ago, he's a totally different player now, and I feel like if he continues improving and rounding out his game, Pionk might be somebody that the Jets really consider extending for a longer-term contract. He's not going to be an elite two-way defenseman or a really elite high-scoring offensive defenseman other than, you know, getting points on the power play and probably getting some even strength scoring as well, but he's the kind of guy that if you if you need to anchor your second pairing with uh, a fast skater with a good shot and at least decent passing, except on the power play, I think Pionk makes a ton of sense. I'd love to see how he and Heinola do next year if Morrissey Heinola is not the top pairing. On a similar train of even more defensemen, I think P.K. Subban has been surprising for all the wrong reasons. Subban's really slowing down, and it's kind of unusual because you know, PK has been one of uh, Nashville's go-to offensive defensemen for many years, and when he got traded to the Devils, he was in a real rut in his career. That rut with the Devils hasn't really improved all that much. He's been a little bit better over the past couple of weeks, but overall, Subban just looks very slow to me. I feel like his age is maybe catching up a lot faster than I anticipated, and his on-ice results are definitely on the very bad side. Um, when you look at the trade in comparison with what Shea Weber has done since they were exchanged, it's kind of amazing that Weber has outlasted him and outperformed them at almost every level. I was certain that the aging curve would hit Weber a lot sooner, but it seems like Shea is actually continuing to, to putt along and, and be a, a high-end offensive defenseman, whereas Subban just looks very bad and very slow and like he's not himself at all. I kind of wonder if he's struggling with some injuries and stuff. Either way, if you're the Devils, this gamble has definitely not paid off like you imagined it would, and uh, it's been a it's been an unfortunate surprise. A happier surprise has been Robbie Fabry's uh, rehabilitation with the Detroit Red Wings. Now, Detroit's a very bad team, and obviously you're not bringing in Fabry to shore up their defensive uh, issues that they have pretty much at all, all situations, but Fabry has been able to contribute a lot on the goal scoring and power play situations. It wasn't really clear if he was ever going to play pro hockey again for an extended period of time, especially after the severity of his knee injuries, but ever since he got traded for Jakob De La Rose, 
He's been nothing but stellar for the Red Wings, and I feel like even though his on-ice impact is, you know, a little bit iffy because of his defensive lapses and Detroit's overall crappiness, he's been all all you can ask for is that he outperforms Jacob De La Rose, and it's not even close. He's been a great goal scorer. He's got good vision and passing. He can do all of these things as a finisher, and Detroit can't really complain about it. He was a bit of a rehabbing long shot, but he's paid off handsomely, and I feel like at the worst, he can be flipped for some deadline rentals and assets. But, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if, if the Red Wings kind of want to keep him around longer term and see if he can develop into something more for them, because Fabry is still on the younger side. He's not, I wouldn't say that he's a prospect. He's definitely not. But relative to how much time he's actually been able to play in the NHL, he's still a little bit on the younger and, and newer side. If nothing else, he makes Detroit a lot more watchable than it would otherwise be. So that's all you can ask for at this point. And I feel like given the fact that they gave up a fourth liner who really doesn't bring any value to that team, this is a great outcome. It's a great surprise. And his rehab success is really a, a really strong story and something to, to keep track of for the rest of the season. All right, guys, as always, thanks so much for listening. Have a great night, and go Jets go.